This is John Lusk of Lusk Archery Adventures on YouTube, and you're listening to the Outdoor Adventures with Jason podcast. Welcome to Outdoor Adventures with Jason. Each week, I bring the world of hunting, fishing, and conservation to you. From the great hunting and fishing opportunities found in the Americas to the dream safaris located on the dark continent beyond. I'll introduce you to those who are already out in the field living every outdoor enthusiast's dream, as well as outfitters and gear manufacturers that can make those dreams your reality. DTO Optics wants to be your optics provider. They offer rugged and dependable rifle scopes, binoculars, spotting scopes, and rangefinder options. You'll find big name quality optics at little name prices. DTO Optics is your value-based optics company providing awesome customer service, a 30-day love it or your money back guarantee, and a lifetime warranty. Check out DTO Optics online at dtooptics.com or on Facebook and Instagram. Racks offering the coolest bow hanger on the market. Display your bow with pride in your house, your garage, or anywhere you'd like. We carry most major brands while also offering a custom service if you have an idea or logo of your own that you'd like made into a hanger. Use them to display your traditional bow, compound bow, or even your crossbow. They also work great for hanging your hunting gear, your bags, or hats. Not to mention the design just looks plain awesome all by themselves. A Racks hanger makes for a great gift for that special hunter in your life. Go to RacksInc.com to see some of the available designs or contact us to discuss the custom hanger of your own. For listeners of the Outdoor Adventures with Jason podcast, use the promo code PODCAST and get 15% off your first order. Racks, show off your passion. Tall Tines Taxidermy is your mid-Michigan taxidermist, conveniently located in Clarksville, Michigan. Lanny specializes in white-tailed deer and any other big-game animals you harvest. As a boutique taxidermy studio, you know who's doing your taxidermy work. Let Lanny Ross, owner of Tall Tines Taxidermy Studio, show you why his motto, Preserving Memories, produces one-of-a-kind works of art for you. Reach Tall Tines Taxidermy at 616-723-7970. Top 10% Deer Management is the premier land management company to help you see better deer on your property. Whether you have 10 acres or 10,000 acres, let a top 10% representative begin to help increase the correct deer habitat on your property. Go to top10percentdeermanagement.com for an introduction. Top 10% Deer Management. Manage. Hunt. Harvest. A family-owned business. Welcome to this episode of Outdoor Adventures with Jason. Today I've got on Ron Nixon. Ron is the founder of Broadhead Nation, which is a large archery community on Facebook that you can find at Broadhead Nation on Facebook. And Ron, how are you doing? I'm good, Jason. How are you? Great. Thanks for being on the show. I, I wanted to have you on today because I've been a member of the group Broadhead Nation for quite a while, and I really enjoy it because your group really has some great, great information on Western hunting so I go there to learn, and there's so much good information there I've learned. I've really appreciated it. Tell me a little bit about Broadhead Nation and how you got this got this going. Broadhead Nation is a, it's a Facebook hunting group. You can find it on Facebook. Search for Facebook groups forward slash Broadhead Nation, and you'll find it. We're 22,000 members, uh, and we frankly don't uh, we don't really discriminate east versus west. We have uh, we're members nationwide. Um, we actually we're members worldwide. We have members in uh, Spain, Portugal. We have members in England. Uh, we have members in Australia, New Zealand. Australia right now is really they're they're uh, they're kicking through their hunting season right now. A lot of fallow deer being posted. Uh, they're wild goats. We call them a Catalina goat out here in, in in the Midwest. So some of those exotic species, Catalina goats, red sags uh, in Australia, and then of course you know here in the, in the states, they just call those a feral goat, don't they? They don't have a, a name like Catalina or anything. Yeah, we call it, you know, in, in Texas, they, they call them a Catalina goat. And then down in Australia, they just, yeah, they just call them goats. They shoot them all the time. <laughs> and there's no season on them. They re- remember Australia had huge, you know, firearm buyback programs. So not everybody owns a lot of firearms and guns. So it's actually a pretty good uh, bow hunting contingency in that, in, the, in that country. So, but yeah, and then of course, back here in the States, we're actually nationwide. We have members in uh, all lower, uh, all the lower 48 states. In fact, I, I believe last I checked, we still have a few members in Hawaii and a bunch in Alaska. So we are a nationwide group. Um, we're not just a bow hunting group. We encourage anyone to post their success using any weapon, any legal method, um, and we don't discriminate. So if you're a muzzleloader hunter and you shoot a great deer, post it up. 
if you're a rifle hunter and you shoot a great elk, post it up. And we have members from uh, Ohio that post a guy that's got a ranch in Ohio, uh, his family farm, and he's constantly posting up uh, his deer that he shoots from a basic whitetail doe to a really nice 12-point buck. And, and, and we just, like I said, we don't, we don't discriminate. We encourage people to post their success from the smallest of the small to the biggest of the big. Our, our mission is to, is to uh, reach out and expand hunting and grow the future of hunting and share the success and share in the misery. We, uh, there's constantly <laughs> people talking about getting on there and they'll put posts up and we commiserate in the misery. Oh my God, I had a great stock and then I missed or, Oh, I was sitting in the tree stand. And this buck came in and he saw me draw. Um, so we, uh, we share stories, uh, and we're, we're a space where, uh, we're a place on Facebook where you can do that without any fear of, Aunt Sally getting on there uh, on your post and saying, oh, I can't believe you shot Bambi or uh, an anti hunter seeing it and getting on there. And how could you kill a poor defenseless animal? Um, those comments uh, never happen. And the other thing that we're really good on, because we police almost every, well, we try to uh, police every single post, especially all the success pictures is uh, we want to let anybody get on there and do any kind of small buck shaming. So if someone shoots a little forked horn buck and it's their first buck and they want to post it up, they are more than welcome to. And if anybody goes on there saying, you need to pass a buck like that and let it grow, we're going to delete that comment. And most of the time, we're going to kick that person out of the group. That's not the positive message we're trying to get forward. Um, we're trying to move uh, the future of hunting forward. We're trying to give people the opportunity to uh, put a platform out there where they don't have to worry about any kind of negative feedback or negative reaction to a hunting success kill. So that's what we're out here for. We're here to uh, share in the, in the joys of the outdoors and grow it. The best way we can do it is to take all the negative aspects of people's attitudes away from, uh, away from the experience. So if someone has something they want to ask as far as a question, a legality question, tactic, bot, we've got people that constantly get help on this page with spots to go hunting, locations, tactics, trails, different ways to set up uh, ground blinds, different ways to set tree stands. You'd be surprised what, what, what people will help with if you just ask for a little help. Yeah, and that's one of the things I like about it is there are several groups out there that are specific to a certain type of sport, and if you try to post anything different, they won't say anything, but you get told that they don't particularly care for it. What I like about your group is whether it's with archery, rifle, anything of that nature, any legal harvest is there. And, and as you said, there's nobody attacking you for whatever you put up there. Right. And that's, that's absolutely key. We need to, uh, as hunters, we need to support each other. There's enough, there's enough lack of support out there from, uh, the non-hunting public as far as the anti-hunters. The anti-hunters and the uh, animal activists, they are so united and resolute on what they want to accomplish with ending all hunting. And a lot of people say, I sound like Chicken Little and the sky is falling, and, but it is actually true. They have in their mission statements to end all sport and game hunting, and they are so resolute on how they want to accomplish it. They will use the emotion. They will use ugly hunting pictures. They will use public outreach. They have millions to spend, hundreds of millions to spend, and getting that in-between crowd on their side. You know, if you want to look at simple numbers, if 10% of the populations are uh, anti-hunting and 10% are hunters, there's an 80% in the middle that don't really hunt anymore and just go to the grocery store and get their meat. Of that 80%, that's who they're targeting. They're targeting the non-hunting public to get them to join their side, and they're doing it through emotion. They're doing it through the rawness of really badly posted pictures to show the evils of hunting. That's just it's, – it's something that we also work on is trying to get people to make hunting a positive thing and just bring people back to our side. We're trying to appeal to the middle – and make sure they understand the importance of hunting, the importance of the North American model of uh, wildlife conservation, trying to make sure that, you know, we're passing on for our future generations, not only 
just the sport of hunting, not just the ethics of hunting, but also the model of conserving our wildlife. And we're conserving it for everybody. Uh, when we have more elk in the field now than we did 20 years ago, that's good for hunters. It's also good for people who like to see elk. So um, I kind of got sidetracked there, but that's uh, that, that's kind of part of what we do too. We advocate for hunters. You know, we do it on our site. We do it with the people's posts. We do it with uh, social media outreach programs, trying to get people to understand what they're doing and understand we're all on the same team. And when you have hunters fighting against hunters because, well, I can't believe you put a scope on your powder rifle. I can't believe you use a mechanical release and a bow that shoots at 360 feet per second. That's not how Fred Bear did it. That, that's the kind of infighting that we just we don't need to have. We need to have hunters united and resolute supporting hunters, hunters united, resolute supporting all legal method of hunting. Wherever that is, we need to support all legal methods of hunting regardless of, that doesn't necessarily mean that baiting for bears is legal here in Arizona. That doesn't necessarily mean you can bait for deer they're legally in michigan within our own states whatever is legal we have to support so in texas sitting around a corn feeder baiting for deer is completely legal i support it certain areas you can shoot hogs from a helicopter once again in texas i support that in idaho you can bait for bears i support that doesn't necessarily mean that i support it everywhere doesn't mean that i advocate for it everywhere but if it's legal in that state i'm down now, those people that want to break the laws and they want to put bait out for bears in Arizona, I don't support that 100%. There's legal and there's illegal. But if it's a legal means, I'm okay with it. Someone wants to jump in a high fence ranch in Oklahoma and shoot a farmed, genetically farmed and, and you know, well-raised, uh, purebred white-tailed deer with these perfect genetics for a 260-inch antler mass, I'm okay with that because it's legal in Oklahoma and they can do it there and that's supporting somebody's family and it's legal hunting there. It's not legal in Arizona. We can't do it in Arizona. That doesn't mean that I'm okay. I, you know, I'm opposed to somebody doing it in Oklahoma. Um, I'm not opposed to somebody shooting uh, exotics on a high fence ranch in 22,000 acres of Missouri, for example, uh, simply because they're allowed to do it there. Let them do it. Uh, anyone who just doesn't support it simply because, well, I don't, I, I would never want to shoot inside a high fence. Well, you don't want to shoot in high fence. That doesn't mean other people don't want to. So that's kind of what we do in Broadhead Nation. If you're opposed to it and you wouldn't do it, that's fine. Um, you're not going to sit and pound on a pulpit and scream from the rooftops that there shouldn't be high fence hunting because you can't do it. If other people are okay with doing it, then it needs to be okay. That's the way that we need to support hunters. Uh, any legal means of hunting is legal wherever it is, and we're going to support that. So that's what we're trying to get across is that as hunters, we just have to unite. There's just, there's enough resistance out there from anti-hunting groups that we, <laughs> the last thing we need is to be fighting amongst ourselves. I believe you all in Arizona, are you still dealing with the issue of whether or not you can hunt mountain lions? No, that was resolved. We um, we kind of nipped that in the bud, thank God. Good. There was a, a push. Yeah, there was a push two years ago um, from uh, Humane Society of the United States. They ran a petition and gathered, were gathering signatures to try and get a ballot on the Arizona general election for 2016 or 20, I guess it was 2016 that they were trying to get a uh, ban put forth on mountain lion. They called it wildcat hunting. And it was a petition that was based on emotion. They were setting up in front of natural whole food grocery stores. Um, they were setting up uh, their tables at art festivals. They were trying to set up their tables in front of the Phoenix Zoo. And they were trying to collect signatures uh, and get a ban put forth on wildcat hunting. Um, it was an effort that was bankrolled by the Humane Society of the United States. They spent upwards of $46 million on this effort. Wow. We kind of, there's a couple of organizations in Arizona that we figured out a way to make sure that they couldn't get enough signatures. Desert Bighorn Sheep Society threw a whole bunch of money at it. It was also uh, supported by Arizona Elk Society. It was also supported by uh, Arizona Wildlife Federation, Mule Deer Foundation. So there's a, there was a, a, a big binding together of uh, some wildlife conservation groups 
um, that we figured out a way to prevent this from happening. And they did not collect the signatures they needed in the time. In fact, it was, uh, I want to say it was March 31st or April 1st of 2016 when they actually came forward and said, uh, 2016, 2017, something like that. Yeah, they did come forward and um, I guess it was right at this time last year, so 2018. Yeah. Anyhow, they did come forward and, and they put out an, uh, a press release that they were ending their effort, and it was it, it was well received uh, by us hunters. Obviously, we were we were real happy. We we shut them down, but we knew that they would be coming back. We knew they were going to make the effort, and now there's a big push out there for putting a ban on uh, predator hunting contests. That actually is a different push. They're talking more about the big coyote killing contest, the big, when you see pictures of coyotes laid out by the dozen, 20, 30 coyotes stacked in the back of a truck. And once again, they're using social media pictures to help support their push for this ban. But as far as mountain lions, we dodged that bullet, thank God. Uh, Mountain lions were allowed to be left unchecked in Arizona. Their populations would completely boom and it would be devastating to bighorn sheep. It would be devastating to elk. Uh, it would be devastating to mule deer specifically. Mule deer are kind of the, especially in Arizona, mule deer are wimpy little subspecies of deer that uh, can't handle a lot of versatility. And the little coos white-tailed deer that we have here in Arizona, even though I'm not a big coos hunter myself, um, I will admit that they are very hardy little animals. They are very, uh, <laughs> they are they're little survivors. When mule deer hit a little drought, when when mule deer start to get devastated by drought and, and dry conditions, coos white-tailed deer seem to move into the area and kind of take over and just find a way to survive anyhow. Uh, but mule deer are the ones that can't handle a whole lot of adversity. And frankly, uh, too many mountain lions would, would be really devastating for mule deer populations as well. So, But we did dodge that bullet. They didn't get a win. Now, the Arizona Game and Fish Department did make an adjustment in the uh, mountain lion seasons. And so there is a season closure now for, I believe it's May, June, and July. And then it opens up again at the same time the archery deer season's open in August. So there is a, a three-month closure for mountain lion hunting now every year. So there was a small adjustment made to the season as far as when you can hunt them. Um, so there's a small closure in the in the late spring, early summer. And that's just to get those kittens up, right? Yeah, they're talking about kitten survival, which there's debate on that because mountain lions don't have a specific breeding season. Mountain lions kind of breed throughout the year. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's also a tricky time because uh, that's also fawn recruitment there. You know, a lot of fawns are starting to drop in June, July. So that's that's really tricky that you've got fawns that are dropping and fawns are some of the most that's their easy prey is, is, you know, deer and antelope and elk, you know, babies that are coming out. So it, it, it's kind of tricky that we're not allowed to hunt mountain lions when there's so many baby deer and elk and antelope running around out there. But, um, you know, we'll make do with what we have. Uh, Game Fish Department made their decision on that, and we're, we're going to go ahead and support that. Well, it's interesting, you know, for anybody that's never been to Arizona, and I know this isn't a show just about Arizona hunting, but with you living there, for anybody that's never been, a lot of times your thought process is, oh, it's just all desert, but it's not. The geographic differences and the wildlife differences are huge. You've got everything from pronghorn to some of the world's, if not best, elk hunting, uh, mule deer. You've got the coos deer. You've got, uh, is it Miriam's turkeys and Gould's turkeys? We actually have, uh, yeah, Miriam's turkeys. Uh, and then in southern Arizona, we do have Gould's turkeys. And then, believe it or not, we do have a third subspecies of turkeys up in the uh, northwest corner of the state, in the units you know, they call the Strip. And uh, we have the we have the Rio Grande turkeys as well up there. So we actually have three subspecies of uh, wild turkeys. And then up on the north rim of the Grand Canyon, north up into that area, you have wild buffalo herds. There are there free free ranging free ranging herds of bison. Yep. And I'm missing something, but. Well, the desert bighorn sheep, obviously, and it's just amazing the diversity of wildlife that you'll find, uh, bears, and having lived in Phoenix, I can remember when it would get real dry and you get those, those couple months in the summer when it was just, you know, no rain, no nothing, and all of a sudden, downtown Phoenix, the police get called because there's a bear up a pine tree, and you're like, how did this bear get yeah, all the way uh... downtown Phoenix before somebody saw it? <laughs> Yeah, these, uh, you know, they, they move around at nighttime, obviously, and just, you know, when it gets still usually in May and June and before our, our, our monsoon storms hit in the mid to late summer in July and August, 
if it gets really dry through April, May, June, by the time it hits mid-June, it's just too hot and too dry. It's unbearable. You get the pun. Anyhow, yep. <laughs> um, the, uh, the the bears will just work their way down from their elevations that are, frankly, kind of a high desert elevation at 3,500-foot elevations or so, and they find their way to where they can get food and water. And, you know, some of the areas uh, in the you know northern parts of town, Fountain Hills, way out in Mesa, out the Gold Canyon area, there's bears drinking out of pools. There's bears roaming around neighborhoods and bears rolling around in a uh, freshly watered grass front yard because it's nice and cool. So yeah, bears, you know, they're, they're nature. Nature will find a way. So they're survivors and they'll make their way down here and they'll do what they can to, uh, to survive. So the wonderful thing about Arizona is you can, in a three hour drive, be from some of the lowest elevations at around three, 400 foot elevations Three hours later, you're in. You've passed three different zones of of environment. You've gone from the lowest desert to your where it's it's barren. There's not much shrubbery at all. You're the Colorado River Valley. Next thing you know, you're in a desert area that's Sonoran Desert, which is rich in uh, creosote and uh, ironwood bushes and saguaro cactuses. And then 30 minutes later, you're in a high desert where there's junipers and cedars and then 30 minutes later you're in a conifer forest with ponderosa pines so and and you're approaching 7500 foot elevations and you've dropped 30 degrees in temperature i think the species you you missed was javelina javelina is the wild peccary kind of a wild hog a wild pig and the funny thing about them is they survive in all those different uh zones of, of of arizona they're in some of the lowest deserts all the way up into the pines so um yeah, it, it really is a neat When I lived out there, the very first spot, you'd think, well, you've got to go out in the desert to see Havelina. You know, you've got to go somewhere where there's no people. Nope. The very first spot I ever saw Havelina was the entrance off of Scottsdale Road into the TPC community eating the flowers in their garden bed. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me at all. There's uh, Havelina sightings in Scottsdale Fountain Hills all the time, heavily in the sightings uh, out in the West Valley, Avondale Goodyear where I live, Buckeye even further west than that. Uh, yeah, no, there's they're they're kind of everywhere. Yeah, it's and they're they're interesting creatures too because they look like a pig, and they sound like a pig, and they don't really act like a pig. They're and they don't really eat like pork either. They're they're definitely more of a red meat, not really a white meat. So and they're interesting to hunt. Um, yeah, I'm sitting here looking at one on my wall as I talk to you here. They look like they're extremely aggressive and they're really not unless you back them into a corner and and there's stories of them coming at you, chomping their teeth at you, but that's kind of few and far between. They're actually pretty wily critters. Their eyesight isn't great until you hit about the uh, 80, 70, 80 yard range and then they can see a fly buzz off your nose and they're, they can spook away from you pretty quick. And see, in Texas, we will hunt them. Now, I'm on a cane now, but before we would hunt with just walking slowly down the senderos, you'd corn the right. senderos, so they're chomping away at the corn, and the best setup, and it didn't happen like this all the time, but the best setup is if the wind's coming from them to you, like any animal, you right. could walk yes. within, not yards, but feet of them, you know, 20 feet, 30 feet from them, and wow. as soon as you stuck one, you might see one or two that were eating the corn, but you didn't see the 15 other ones that were in the brush on either side of the road. And as soon as you stuck one... The next thing you know, both, yeah, both sides of the roads explode with javelina running everywhere. Yep, it's just a controlled chaos, man. They're going everywhere. And that's about the only... T- I mean, will they come after you? Sure. I-, I think the only time we've ever seen them, quote, unquote, come after us is when the ones that are on the sides of the road don't know what happened and they just run and it happens to be at you, you know, and they come busting out of the brush and you're standing there and they, they break up just as fast as, you know, you're going, you know, eyes wide because with the crossbow, you, you don't have a chance to reload it. You just shoot it and hope for the best afterwards. Exactly. So now not only have you hunted Arizona, but tell me a little bit about, right. now, you told me before we started recording that you're headed to Australia in a couple weeks Will this be your first overseas trip? 
This is I mean, my first, uh, not my first overseas trip, my first overseas hunting trip, yes. You know, the, one of the wildlife conservation groups we have in Arizona is called the uh, Arizona Elk Society. They do a banquet fundraiser. They only do a couple a year, and the big one is usually every April down here in the valley, down in Mesa, Arizona. And it was uh, last year that we uh, we bought a couple tables through Broadhead Nation, and we had we supported the, the banquet, and we had a couple tables full of members, and the checking account looked good out that year, and uh, just... One of the live auction items that came up during the banquet was a uh, red stag hunt in Australia. I put my hand in the air for the opening bid, and about five minutes later, I put my hand in the air for the last bid, and I got a pretty good deal on what I felt was going to be a great hunt, kind of a hunt of a lifetime. And so I find myself now completely booked with plane tickets and been communicating back and forth with the outfitter. And so it's 20-some-odd thousand-acre low-fence ranch in the Australian outback. And so me and the family fly in to Sydney, Australia. So my wife and my daughter, um, they're going to stay in Sydney for four or five days sightseeing and on their own. And uh, I'll jump on a different plane, head into the outback, and I'll hunt for five days. Um, so I've got a red stag I'm after and then an exotic species of deer that's pretty rare around the globe called a rusa deer. They've got a good population of them there. Oh, nice. R-U-S-A, if anybody wants, wants if anyone wants to look them up, it's R-U-S-A deer or Rusa deer. So I'm going to try and get a Rusa deer as well. And then uh, I'll fly back in Sydney, Australia, and hang out with the family for a couple days. And then we'll fly on back to Arizona. So, yeah, looking forward to that trip. It's, uh, like I say, kind of a trip of a lifetime. They're kind of surprised that I'm bringing a bow. Uh, not that they don't have bow hunters. It's just normally when people travel internationally, they don't bring a bow. <laughs> The outfitters are like, well, you can bring your bow, but our outfitter will have a rifle if you want to use the rifle instead. My response and you know, email back and forth with them is, that's fine. What, and, you know, and I kind of asked them, what kind of shots are we expecting? And they said, well, your maximum shot would be right around a 50-yard range. And for me, now, some of your East Coast hunters may hear 50, ra- 50 yards or your Midwest hunters might hear 50 yards and say, holy cow, that's forever. The last two animals I killed in Arizona – uh, as far as deer or elk, I shot a deer at 63 yards and an elk at 70. So long shots are pretty common out here out west. So for me to have to sit a blind to make a 50-yard shot on a target of a red deer that's almost the size of an elk doesn't sound like it's going to be that hard of an issue. So Yeah, that's interesting because having lived in Texas where we could, because feeders were legal, we could kind of set up Right, a blind within whatever distance from the feeder we wanted, and that was the shots we generally knew we had to make. East Coast, a little bit different. Eastern here, we can set up maybe 30 yards out and and hope it works out. But for Western hunting, you guys and gals, you practice at a much longer distance generally than we do here in the East. Yeah, warming up at 20 and 30 yards is pretty common for people to go to the archery ranges out here. Um, and then every archery range out here has 50, 60, 70 yard targets. Personally, my backyard, uh, I, I'm fortunate to have a, a decent sized home site, decent sized lot, and I can stand from one corner to the other and I can make a 50 yard shot just practicing in my backyard. So if we're, you know, you're getting different tactics, you know, spot and stock tactics where you've got to maneuver around trees and some in some pretty open country and you never know if you're that last time you pick that rangefinder up and, and and put it on the side of that animal and it says 57 yards you don't know if you're going to get any closer or not and if you practice within those ranges and you're comfortable it's time to let that arrow fly so practicing and shooting at longer distances you know exceeding 40 yards it's relatively common there's guys out here that do it and probably shouldn't but making 70, 80, 90 yard shots, you, you can't make the choice for anybody else and their hunting ethics. It's you got to trust that everybody is working within what their own comfort zone is. Um, I personally do practice out to a hundred yards. I have different areas where I can do that. Uh, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to take a hundred yard shot, but practicing at a hundred 
to make an 80 yard shot makes a world of difference. That's just like practicing at 50. When a buck comes in at 30 yards, that's a layup. That's a guaranteed kill. I can put that arrow just about anywhere on that animal. So I think the further you practice, the easier it makes those closer shots. So that's the only reason I really practice out to 100 yards. I can't say whether I would or wouldn't take a 100 yard shot. I guess it would depend on the situation. You have to analyze everything. Uh, Is that your only opportunity to an animal? Is there a good wind is there not a good wind it's you can't judge a person's personal ethics you just hope their ethics and their 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 shooting morals are 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 proper to their actual practice and appropriate with their their accuracy so if you've got somebody that that takes a hundred yard shot but they only practice at 40 and 50 they probably shouldn't be taking that hundred yard shot but yeah out here west it's definitely different we definitely have a little more wide open spaces to make those longer shots and take those longer shots yeah, it's it's interesting. I there's like the gentleman who I'll see him on Cameron Haynes, and he's just like the right. odd example because he's just a, a beast of a guy. But he'll shoot. Right. He did exactly what you said: is that I practice at a hundred, so my confidence is there, so that when I see something at eighty, I know it's a layup. I know I can do that as long as the wind and everything right. is in my favor. Yeah, and you know some of the TV guys, you know Tim Wells, he's a you know he's he's got his archery show, and that guy takes shots that we wouldn't possibly dream of but the opening of his show shows him shooting shooting ducks and out of the air at 45 yards uh he takes running shots at animals at 70 and 80 yards but that guy sleeps with his bow on his hip that guy shoots dozens of arrows every day uh, as an instinctive archer to be able to make and take and make those shots on a regular basis just like fred bear fred bear was an instinctive shooter he didn't have sights he had a finger tab and a recurve and his handmade arrows. So, you know, these guys that are instinctive shooters that are capable of taking those shots, we can't judge those. What no. we can do is our, our own personal hunting is make sure that our practice matches our ethics when it comes time to taking shots. So, yeah. And I've been one even now I picked up a new crossbow last week and it's a much more powerful crossbow than my last one, but I was never, com- right. I didn't like shooting out anywhere past 30 yards. And that was just a personal wow. preference. My crossbow could go much farther. There wasn't an issue with that. But here in Michigan, with the woods the way it is, you generally weren't. I mean, you could sit on the edge of fields and hunt, and there, there's certainly much, much longer shots that can be taken. I just didn't like to shoot past oh, 30 sure. yards. I had a crossbow that was shooting at 300, and it, on its best day under best conditions, about 300 feet per second. Um, so it was great when I would hog hunt with it, 25 yards, give or take from the feeder, uh, could hammer hogs all day long. That was just my personal choice. Uh, I've got a friend that shoots out much right. farther and he's great with what he does. And as you said, I support him. It's not my, if he, if he was missing or wounding a bunch of animals, then I'd say, Hey, you, you might want to practice some more, uh, but he doesn't. Right. Exactly. He, you know, he connects and kills. So how would I be to say, well, since I only shoot 30 yards, I think you should only shoot 30 yards or less. No, that's, I congratulate him and say, man, exactly. that's a great job. Well, and there's, shoot, there's crossbows nowadays that shoot over 400 feet per second. There's crossbows that are advertised on TV that you can put together six inch groups at a hundred yards. So yeah. it's just about your own personal capabilities and how steady you can keep those crosshairs. And if you feel like you can make those shot and this summer, I'm going to take my bow out to a spot, my new one, and mess around with a target at 100 yards. I just don't want to shoot an right. animal at that distance. But shooting a bag and punching some paper is, <laughs> is fun. Yeah, that's fun. And so besides, now you've got Australia coming up and the hunts you've done in Arizona. Yep. Where else have you done hunts? Yep. What, what else have you done for archery hunting? Like, What's probably been one that you sit back and say, man, that was really the, the trip I'd always wanted to do? There's so many trips that you always want to do. It's like you said, in Arizona, we're really fortunate. People, once again, if they don't realize what we have out here, they probably don't get it, I guess. But if you look nationwide, worldwide, the biggest mule deer on an annual basis that are that are killed are taken out of southern Utah, northern uh, Arizona. Um, so we have some of the biggest mule deer in the country. The biggest elk that are taken on an annual basis are usually taken out of one of two or three units in Arizona. Now, sure, they've got great big elk in Montana, and I'm not taking any away from any states. We're just really fortunate here that you can put together 
what a lot of people consider once in a lifetime hunts, but because we're residents in Arizona, you can do it every couple of years. That's awesome. I had a really good run here um, from 2016 through 2018, where I was kind of batting a thousand. I did do a mule deer hunt in Arizona and I tag out and I did a javelina hunt in Arizona and I tag out and I did an ex- uh, exotic hunt for axis deer in Texas and I tag out and well, of course there's no tags, but, but I was successful and I, you know, did an elk hunt here in Arizona and I did that in uh, 2017 and it was um, a late November hunt. It was past all that glorious TV elk rut season that everybody loves and everyone always tells me that, hey, that late November tag is a horrible tag. They're not bugling. You can't find them. And yet I tagged out. Um, so the one hunt that I always wanted to do was I, I've, I've, I've wanted ever since I shot my first deer. I shot my first deer all the way back in 1992-93. It was a little velvet forked horn mule deer. And I said that I wanted a big, typical velvet mule deer. And so um, I had a buddy of mine that moved from Arizona, Doug Clark, moved uh, all the way up to Wyoming and he invited me up and said, Hey, if you want to put in for a non-resident mule deer tag, here's the hunt that you want to put in for. And so I went online and I paid to play and I put in for the limited entry and I drew the tag and went up there and, and I shot kind of a dream buck for me. It's uh, no record breaker, but to put together a, a 170 inch, beautiful, typical four point mule deer that was in full velvet and we're able to preserve the velvet for the uh, tax through the taxidermy. It was kind of a dream come true. It was a perfect situation that there was just enough diversion that the deer was trying to stay away from my buddy Doug and Ryan that were that were uh, up ahead of me. They were trying to stay away from them and maneuvered towards me and didn't know I was crouching behind a tree. And I made a perfect shot. I got in nice and close. You know, we talk about and we were just talking about long shots. And I took a 17-yard shot and. It was just a perfectly placed shot that, uh, well, I mean, you're an East Coast hunter, so you understand, you know, a a, a white-tailed deer or a deer trying to, quote-unquote, jump the string, right? Sure. This mule deer basically tried to jump the string, but he was trying to crouch down and jump the string as the arrow was actually going into his rib cage. And so as he was crouching down with the arrow going in, he actually diverted the angle of the arrow up into his spine, and he dropped right in his tracks. And he ended up, (laughs) so uh, to have this, big giant what i would almost consider a once in a lifetime public land velvet mule deer drop right in his tracks where he isn't destroying any of the uh uh isn't destroying any of the the velvet on his antlers we were able to preserve that uh, he didn't run for miles getting all adrenaline ran up and and ruin the taste of any of the meat it was just it was a dream come true I was able to bring him home from uh, Wyoming to Arizona, and uh, tax is finishing up on him right now. So that was something I did last uh, last September, September 2018. So cool. After that, I hit a little rough stretch uh, where I went um, went on a hunt in Oklahoma and uh, didn't do so hot, and then I went on a couple of hunts here in Arizona and didn't do so hot. You know, it's you know I had an opportunity about a hundred and 65 inch, 170 inch desert mule deer, which is, that's a really nice size mule deer in Arizona, especially down these lower deserts and, uh, had a missed shot. I pulled the shot, you know, too far to the right on this deer. That was about 48, 50 yards. You know, it's, it's bow hunting. You, you take the highs with the highs, you take the lows with the lows and, and kind of move on forward. So yeah, uh, other than that, I'm looking forward to get back, get back on some killing ways. For anybody that's looking at elk hunting in Arizona, if they're an out of state resident, they could be in for a rude awakening if they've never looked at it before. Yeah, they could. There's such a huge demand. Now, what I don't remember is when you get up by Pine Top, pretty much everything south of that is reservation land. Correct. Do the reservations offer hunts on their own schedule? They, they have their own wildlife management? They do. Yeah, they have their own wildlife management organization. They manage their hunts. They do a, a public draw system similar to uh, similar to any public draw, you know, a random draw. It's, um, but it's hard, you know, whereas Arizona Game and Fish Department is going to put out thousands of bull elk tags, the, uh, the two or three different tribes that are, uh, way out in Eastern Arizona, they're going to put out a couple hundred. So that's not, and they're, and they're not going to be, they're not inexpensive. I mean, they're, they're very expensive tags to try and get for those reservation hunts. That's what I thought is that that w- It's a quality over quantity thing. So they manage for really top quality 
and they charge in the thousands for tags. Whereas in Arizona Gaming Fish Department and the public land here, non-reservation land, we, uh, we, we manage for quantity. There happens to be, because of the genetics that are in Arizona, there happens to be good quality. But, you know, your best bet if you're trying to draw an Arizona tag is to uh, definitely put, for, put in for the, uh, the public hunts in Arizona, not the, uh, not the reservation tags. So. Yeah, I watched a gentleman do a reservation hunt. He kept pu- wanting uh-huh. to pull back the, draw, the bow on these amazing elk that were coming in. Just huge. And right. the guy's like, no, too small, not ready. And he, right. he was going, not right. ready. He goes, I, I've passed on five. And then they hunted. He was up there for six or seven days. In the first two days, he had four or five just beautiful elk, you know, that I would have dropped in a heartbeat. And the guy said, no, pass, pass, pass. And then for like the next three or four days, they didn't see a single elk. So now he's getting real itchy going, man, did I pass up all those great elk and now I'm not going to see anything? And then on the last day, he ended up taking a 400-plus-inch elk. It was just a monster. The mass, the size, everything. It was just a, a beast of an elk. Yeah, I mean, if if you know what's in the area, it's hard. And you're really stuck on wanting to, to, to get a big animal. It's hard to... It's hard to shoot the ones that you know are just kind of small. Um, you know, even on my elk hunt, you know, a late November hunt, my first three or four hours that I was in a blind in a location where I really wanted to be, it took me it took me three days to be able to find the location that I wanted to be in, even after the weeks and weeks of scouting. You know, there's other hunters in there and kind of a first come, first serve, and they were sitting there first. And so um, I actually helped helped the guy get his elk so he could clear out of the area and I'd have the spot to myself. And when that finally happened, it was uh, three days into my hunt. I get set up in my ground blind. Within three hours, I had passed up three bulls that frankly, most first time bull elk hunters would have shot, but I knew it was in the area. You know, I had, I had, I had put eyes on bigger elk. I had trail camera footage of some giants. Um, I had missed an elk the night before that, uh, two elk that were walking walking in together that were about 70 yards one was probably in the 380 class and one was well over 400 so um, when you know it's in the area and you really want to shoot something big especially if you've got a lot of days left in your hunt it's really hard to uh to drop the string on the smaller ones it's it's a tough battle man and you have a battle with yourself I i sit back and i look at the bull i shot which is a respectable bull compared to the third one i passed on my first evening in the blind where i was supposed to be and it's regrettable. I mean, the one I passed on was probably a 325, 330-inch bull. I said not taking anything away from the bull that I shot, but uh, it was a last-day bull that I took. Um, I had four or five interactions with him. It was in, in the entire, you know, 12 days that I was sitting there. So it was. Uh, I was very happy with the one I shot, but the one I passed, the third one I shot, man, yeah, I even had outfitters and guides when I showed them a picture of it because, you know, I had the bull standing at 18 yards from me. So I just took a picture of my cell phone. I show pictures to outfitters and guides, and they shake their head and they see that bull on that hunt, <laughs> um, especially that late in the year. <laughs> that you know, that late in the year, November, where the elk have done all their fighting, and elk have done all their fighting, and antlers are busted up, and uh, you that elk come in with complete mane beans missing because they fought so hard for cows. So, and the fact that I had a really nice bull in the 325, 330 range come in with only missing one point and I passed it is kind of uh, kind of crazy and I'll admit it but like I say when I saw you know a 380 and a 400 the evening before you really know what's out there right you want to kind of sit tight and yeah when you have that knowledge you know look I got time I got 10 more days bulls keep coming in they keep getting better and better I got time I can sit I can wait there that those big boys will come in again so yeah yeah now it's it's an interesting put up now if you're wanting to hunt elk in arizona or mule deer or turkey or anything and you're a non-resident i mean this applies but i'm I'm mainly speaking of the folks that aren't arizona residents at this point you go ahead you have to you have to buy your non-resident hunting license and then you have to buy the tag for the drawing of whatever the species or species are so you put in for those different items and if if i've heard in many of those good zones for the the huge elk, you know, outside of the reservation, it can take a non-resident 9, 10, 11, 12 years to get drawn. If not more. If not more. If not more, yeah. And so you figure you're going to have, I think as a non-resident, by the time you buy your license and your elk uh, piece of it, you're talking almost $1,000? 
So it's uh, if a non-resident wants to put in for for an elk tag, yeah, you're talking it's uh, 150 bucks for the non-resident license, and then they're uh, putting in for the putting in for the tag themselves, which they're initially charged a $15 application fee. So boom, 165 bucks up front. Now when the drawing actually happens, let's pick a unit that has a hundred. I won't name a number, but as far as the unit number, but let's say a unit has a hundred tags available in the general draw, and out of those hundred tags, they will say only 10% of them can go to non-residents. So now you've got all the non-residents out there that are vying for 10% of 100 tags, so that's only 10 tags. So Arizona's really good at taking care of the residents. They're good at taking care of making sure that Arizona's, Arizona's get their opportunities on those hunts. You put, you know, that's on an archery hunt. On a, on a rifle hunt, on a general tag, maybe there's 450 tags in there. Okay, well now 10% of that's 45. Okay, so now that's a better chance to draw and you can use a rifle, you can use a bow, you can use a muzzle loader. That's fine. You can use a crossbow on that hunt if you wanted. But once again, look at the thousands of people putting in for it. Right. It, it gets to be slim pickings. If you draw the tag, it's somewhere around 500 to 550 bucks for the tag now for non-residents. So your total about 650 to $700 for your tag. And then as a non-resident, you got to decide, do you know the state at all? Do you know the area at all? It's public land. There's going to be hundreds, if not a thousand other hunters in the field. Do you want to take a chance on just showing up and hoping to find an elk? Or do you want to get out here a couple times and try and scout and see if you can find something? Or are you going to pick up the phone and find a couple outfitters and spend between 3500 and $6,000 to have an outfitter or a guide make sure that the, you, you have a, a, a scouted out area that they know that they've hunted forever and you know be able to lock up you know, lock up a really good, you know, hunt of a lifetime. Yeah, a buddy of mine who lives out there, he drew up around, oh, I don't know what the unit is, but up around Springerville. And uh-huh. it was a cow elk tag. Just okay. through running around um, for that unit, you, you know, as you're running around Phoenix, you meet people everywhere. And one guy said, hey, my aunt and uncle have a place up there that's always loaded with elk and nobody ever hunts it. It's only about 100 acres. Do you want to hunt it? And it was just... sure. He was like, yeah, if they don't care. And so he goes, they're in North Carolina or wherever. He says, let me call them. He called them and they said, yeah, just don't, you know, set the place on fire. Uh, you know, they were just joking. But right. he went up there and he goes, man, there was cow elk everywhere because they knew that that little 100 acres, nobody ever shot them in it. So he right. set up in a blind. He had his 30-odd-6 rifle and shot. He had his cow elk on the ground within like, I don't know, two hours of the hunt. Sure. And so for him, he's like, hey, I don't know why everybody says this is so hard. Yeah, when you find those little hidden pockets, especially that are, you know, posted, no trespassing, you know, areas, and all of a sudden you get permission from that landowner, you got a gold mine there. Now, I've gone, I don't know what the unit is either, but my ex-wife and I used to stay in Williams, and which is just uh-huh. west of Flagstaff for people listening. And when you head south out of yep. Williams towards Bill Williams Mountain, you get to a piece of the road where there's a large, there's very little water up in that area, and there's a large stock tank right there for the guys that run cattle. If you pull off on the side of the road right there at dusk, you can hear all the elk cows calling. Yep. They just start coming out of the woods all over the place and I remember sitting there we were watching the elk and this was in the fall time so there was a bull that was coming out to bugle and it's the first time I'd ever seen not only Arizona elk but the first time I'd ever seen an elk bugle and it's this big bull walking right. through the herd bugling and we're so intent on watching it all of a sudden my ex-wife goes hey look out the window to up to my right and I look out and there's got to be 15 20 mule deer just lined up waiting for the elk to leave the field so they can go in and get their water and yeah they 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 don't take well the bully bull elk they they'll sit around there they'll wait their turn yeah it was really cool i had never seen anything like that before again i don't know what zone that is i don't know if that's 8 or you know, whatever, but it was just a great spot to go and see elk. So I encourage folks, you know, you can build up preference points there. So the longer you're in the drawing, the more opportunities you have. Talk to people, go on to Broadhead Nation. If you want to do it, do it yourself, get on to uh, Broadhead Nation and start talking to people. There's not only are there guides on there, but there's equipment manufacturers. There's uh, like Broadhead makers. There's all sorts of different, you know, there's plenty of guys that just hunt like yourself that can 
point you in some right directions. And I haven't ever seen anybody on there that's not willing to help. Yeah, we uh, we try to keep it as, once again, on Broad Nation, we try to keep it as, as friendly of the forum as possible. Uh, if you're not willing to help, one of the rules is if you don't want to help, scroll on. If someone asks a question and you don't want to give an answer to, scroll on. So sometimes someone will put a post out there asking for help or looking for some help, and uh, they'll get five, ten comments. Sometimes they'll put a question out there looking for help, and they'll get 30 or 40 comments. Almost almost every time I can promise you that somebody puts a question out there asking for help on a location or specific area they're in, and, hey, I drew the tag in this area, uh, and they'll preface it by saying, hey, I'm lo- not looking for any, quote-unquote, honey holes, uh, or not looking for any secret spots, but I'm just looking for some general help on where to start especially as a non-resident. Hey, I, I don't live in Arizona, and I drew this tag in this area. I'm looking to see if anybody has any starting points. Gosh, for, for me to see that and see a non-resident coming, the last thing I wanted a non-resident to have a horrible experience in Arizona. So I would say most of the time someone puts a post out like that, you, even though you may not get a lot of public traction as far as, uh, as, far as information or, or, or comments on your posts, uh, I bet most of those people at least get one or two private messages sent to them through Facebook Messenger, giving them some hints or some locations or some starting points. Like I say, it's a pretty helpful group. People like to help. I, I firmly believe most people are good. Really, I do. I think most people would, are, are willing to help out their fellow man and their fellow hunter if given the opportunity to. I agree. I agree. So, well, you know, again, all they got to do is go to Facebook and search out Broadhead Nation and they'll locate you. Yep. You've got all sorts of good information. I mean, it looks like what you were out fishing the last couple of days. Yeah, yeah, that was pretty horrible. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there's that, that once again, one of the things we're blessed with in Arizona is we have a, 20, uh, a 12 month uh, outdoor season. On the few months that there's not much going on for hunting, uh, some of the bass fishing is some of the you know, the bass fishing we have here in some of our lower uh, desert reservoirs are fantastic in uh, March, April, and May, uh, even into June. And unfortunately, my last couple trips out have been uh, very unproductive. Um, but, you know, I took a back step to, uh, uh, you know, bass fishing took a, a back seat to the hunting that I'm doing. So I don't do as much fishing as I used to. I've got a, uh, I've got a, a bass boat to do it. But, yeah, you get out of practice just like in anything. Well, and there's never a bad day of fishing. You know, you might not catch fish, but it's still fun to be out there. Right. It it, it really was, uh, especially yesterday, it was nice to be out there. We uh, got it was, you know, it's the end, uh, as we record this, it's the end of May. Typically in Arizona, we're in the high 90s, if not the low 100s. And uh, yesterday, it was a high temperature of 84 degrees. Uh, it was beautiful out on the lake, just a slight breeze, never drift a uh, a drop of sweat off my brow. It was uh, it was just beautiful weather. Uh, my buddy that was with me was catching a couple fish, so he was having fun. He fishes probably every week. He's a little more averse to current tactics and methods than I am right now. And it, saw a couple mule deer getting a drink of water down at the lake edge. Saw I took a picture. I think I posted that on Broadhead Nation. Is what you're talking about? I posted a uh, picture of a saguaro cactus that's about. 30 feet tall that looks like it got struck by a bolt of lightning and burnt up and yep. it was kind of a, a charred cactus skeleton which was really cool looking saw a couple of uh kind of desert iguanas they're not like they're not an actual iguana but they're a desert lizard and they're called a chuckwalla and it's spelled just like it it sounds chuck and w-a-l-l-a chuckwalla desert desert lizards saw a couple of those messing around fighting each other up on the rocks next to the lake edge just you know not that they're rare but you don't see them all the time and uh, it's just nice to see the wildlife. It was really great to be out there, especially on a nice, cool day, and was you know, watching Lake the Pleasant? buzzards circle around a dead fish. No, this was that uh, up in uh, northeast of uh, Carefree area. It was Bartlett Lake. Oh, Bartlett. Okay. Yeah, Bartlett. Yeah. Yeah, and those, and I mean, every one of those lakes is one that you can swim in if you want to. Uh, you know, absolutely. If it gets hot, you jump off the side of the boat, climb back in, and and keep fishing. So there's yeah, water temperature. Yeah, water temperature yesterday was 69 degrees. So if it was if it was hot enough, you're talking almost 70 degree water, and that's I mean, if it's 110 outside and the water temperature is 70 to 75 degrees, man, that's a nice, refreshing, cool dip in the lake, and then jump back out and uh, get in the lake, pick up or get in the boat and pick the fishing pole up and get back at it. So. Well, you know, it was great. To, you know, I, I can't recommend Broadhead Nation enough. It's a very fun Thank place you. to learn. I've 
like I said, I creep through there a lot as far as reading. I read most everything that gets posted. I go and read a lot right. of links that come in there uh, because I use it really as a learning spot because some of the stuff I just don't know enough to help out, but i always learning. It's like a great spot to learn. So I encourage folks, it's easy to find. Again, it's, it's just Broadhead Nation, just like it sounds. Do a search for it. You could join the group. You and several admins run run the whole deal. And so once you join, you guys will look at whatever you do for the join. I don't even remember what it was, if there's questions to fill out or anything of that nature. Yeah, we have uh, we have three security questions. Uh, the first one is, are you a big game hunter? Uh, because we are a hunting group, uh, even though we just talked about fishing. Um, you know, if you're a bass fisherman and you want to be in a hunting group, man, you, you, you better have some pictures of you holding a deer in, in your uh, Facebook profile somewhere. So one of the first question is, is uh, are you are you a big game hunter? We're not for bird watchers. We're not for bass fishermen. Second question is, um, are you going to support any legal means of hunting, whether it's something you would personally do or not? And you got to answer yes to that. And the third question is, are you going to keep it clean? You know, watch the vulgarity and act like your grandma's watching in there. And you know, there's there's it's a kid friendly group. We've got a whole bunch of teenagers in the group and and younger kids. You know, as as young as nine and 10 years old, just getting their first Facebook groups and, uh, you know, social media pages and, and Facebook pages. And, you know, we allow kids and we allow, uh, you know, there's a, I think, uh, 4,300 members. So, uh, we, we have women, we have kids, we have grandmas. So we, we want people to keep it clean. So you got to say, yes, you're going to keep it from being vulgar. And if we ever see an F bomb in there, we're going to delete it. Uh, we're going to delete the entire comment. So, yeah. Uh, and then, uh, like I say, the, the uh, admins I have with me, we're going to screen pretty much everybody that, that's uh, joining, make sure that it looks like you've got uh, some kind of hunting pictures in your profile. Um, if we screen you, if you said yes to all the three questions and we go to your profile and you belong to one of the anti-hunting groups, you're going to get blocked because <laughs> we don't want you. Um, yeah, and then, uh, once again, we feel free feel free to post any success anywhere. I'm happy to see white-tailed deer posted up from Michigan. I'm happy to see the smallest of a nubby little spike buck and a doe up to the biggest tenor point buck you can shoot, Jason. Yep, I like to see the kids get out there and start posting, too. So it's been a... Absolutely. Kids, kids, are, kids are the future of hunting, and, you know, hunter recruitment's important. important. we got to get the kids out there enjoying it, and... And they got to get their grip and grins out there, and they got to have their success, and we got to see it. We got to find a way to put our arms around that middle-aged, uh, middle-aged millennial, the 25 to 30-year-old, and say, "Hey, you really need to come out and go hunting with us and see a good time, and and recruit those uh, recruit those millennials so that they'll teach their kids. Because without the few, without people buying licenses and 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 out there supporting hunting." Man, our, our wildlife organizations and, and our gaming fish department's got no revenue to run on. So, yeah, hunter recruitment's important. we got to have the kids involved, and we like to keep the kids involved. So, Most definitely, because once the anti-hunters get a, a seat at the table and they get their foot in the door, hunting's going to have a major issue facing it. And so the more people, even if they don't want to hunt, but just say, yeah, i got no problem with it, that's the the kind of right. recruitment that is just as valuable as well. So, you know, Ron, I really appreciate your time. I know I've had John for quite a while, and I appreciate no, some no of the problem at all. background on not only Broadhead Nation, but how a lot of what Arizona works. And I, I can't thank you enough for your yeah, time. Absolutely. Jason, thanks for having me, and uh, appreciate the opportunity to get on, talk about my group, and talk about my passion. Oh, yeah, I appreciate it. I, again, it's a great group. I'm going to have a link in the show notes to Broadhead Nation, so you can click right on that link, and you'll go right to the group, and then you can join from there. And, Ron, I, I hope to hear more success stories from your trip to Australia, and I can't wait to see the pictures when you get back. Thanks. Uh, yeah, give me a call when I get back, and uh, we'll do it again. Sounds good, sir. You have a good one. Thanks, Jason. Take care. Take care. Come early spring, it's getting green Fisher on the bed And hear those turkeys gobble It's ringing in my head The winter rides bass boat Here comes another year Yeah, we command the outdoors around here Oh, we command the outdoors Yeah, we command the outdoors. Come summertime, we're feeling fine, fishing on the lake. 
Flipping jigs in Carolina rigs From early morning till real late Bonfires on the creek bank Kick back a couple beers Yeah, we command the outdoors around here Yeah, we command the outdoors Yeah, we Year's dozen till you know winter's on the way. Brushing blinds and deer stands. The fever starts to creep. Fill our freezers full of ducks, lots of tender deer. Yeah, we command the outdoors around here. Yeah, we command the outdoors. Yeah, we command the outdoors. So grab your guns, shells, boys. Put on your camouflage. Cause we command the outdoors around here. We command the outdoors.